0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as Brian said, this is Pentecost Sunday, and if you know the book of Acts, you know that Pentecost actually happens in Acts chapter 2, and that's really the chapter I wanted to be in this morning. I was excited to come back together, regather for the first time on this Sunday and immediately jump into Acts chapter two where you hear the story of the Holy Spirit falling on the church and it explodes with evangelism and outreach. And so I was determined to write that sermon and I did all week. I wrote a sermon on Acts two and I felt the Lord just absolutely pressing upon me. That's just not appropriate for today. I mean, I wanted to see this regathering Sunday as one of launching this momentous movement of ministry in 2020, making up for lost time in the months that we haven't had together, and the events of this month, of this week, of this weekend. That's not appropriate for today. And so instead of doing what I wanted to do in Acts 2, which I pray we'll do next week, we're going to look at a scene from the church before Pentecost that has none of the flashy, glittery, celebratory church newsletter success story kind of stuff that I love and I live for. And instead, we're going to watch 120 born-again believers facing indescribable odds retreat to pray. I think that's very fitting for this morning. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there with them for 40 days with the disciples. He suffers many proofs to show them he's risen from the dead. Then he ascends into heaven, and the disciples watch that. And then we pick them up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Alevet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray together. How sweet to watch the earliest church pray together, devoted to falling before you and seeking your face to be united in their prayer together, even as they faced things that were very unclear how they would turn out. Let us do the same today. Move us in that way. We ask, we pray, we plead in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I just very simply want to understand the context here in the first century church and then uh, compare it to our context in the 21st century church. And then I want to see their reaction, their response to that context. And then I want to think about our response and our reaction to our context. So we're going to do those Four things. But first of all, I want us to see the state of the church in the first century what they were up against, what they were experiencing. What must it have been like? Could we place ourselves in the disciples' and this gathering's shoes at this time? They have just lost, 40 days before, their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, their savior to the most gruesome death that they still didn't quite understand was going to happen to him. They lost a dear friend and teammate, Judas Iscariot, not this Judas, who betrayed Jesus and ultimately took his own life by suicide. And then joy of all joys, Jesus rises from the dead. They get to see him, experience him, touch him, spend these 40 days with him. And they must be thinking to themselves, this is wonderful. We're out to prove Jesus' resurrection and he's here. But he communicates to them, I'm not going with you. You're going to talk about me in my absence. And that must have been terrifying. In fact, they're so disoriented in Acts chapter 1, it's kind of embarrassing to read about the early church. The last recorded words that the disciples have to Jesus are yet another question of confusion. Jesus, is this it? We've done the whole three years of ministry. We've done the death. We've seen the resurrection. We've celebrated that for 40 days. At this time, are you bringing your kingdom? Are we done here? Jesus says, "You have no idea. I'm leaving, you're going to be worldwide witnesses and every one of you but John are going to die for the privilege. And then they're so disoriented that even when Jesus ascends into heaven, they stand there looking up, gawking at heaven, I guess waiting for something else to happen, so much so that an angel needs to appear, which is a really rare occurrence in the Bible to say, why are you still looking at heaven? He told you to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit. They're they're disorient. They're going back to a city with a message to preach to people who hate them and want to kill them. Imagine going back to Jerusalem and into the upper room where you had just celebrated the Last Supper. I mean, Jesus is empty chair is right there, his absence is palpable, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And we've got the advantage of looking back on the early church 2,000 years later when it felt inevitable that this movement would rock the known Roman world I mean it would just be this explosion this celebration of what God has done but I promise you if you were in the disciples shoes and that 120 gathering there it was anything but inevitable the church it felt like a a bruised reed and a smoldering wick it wasn't clear if they were going to make it through the week without Jesus and his resurrected presence that's the context that they're in that's what they're up against I, I'm not even really drawing exact parallels between them and us in our context today, but simply to say what we in the 21st century church here in America share with the first century church is we are up against things that we have not seen in this way or experienced in this way. this convergence of events. We too are facing things that we don't know how to deal with. We don't know how to answer, we don't know how to respond, we don't know what to do next. We are facing things that unless God himself is moving in this church body, in this community, in our hearts, we cannot take one meaningful step forward. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe we are at that point, that we are at the end of our abilities and gifts and wherewithal and ministry plans, that unless God is moving... Unless his spirit does something miraculous, we have no strength to move. Think about this convergence that is upon us right now. We think first and foremost this weekend of racism and injustice. Will Smith is right, racism isn't getting worse, it's just getting filmed. And in this past month, we've witnessed the senseless killings of three people made in God's image. Ahmaud Arbery on a jog. Breonna Taylor sleeping in her bed. George Floyd being detained by police. And I think about conversations with minority friends during these past weeks and hearing feelings of despair and anger and helplessness and rage. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. I'm haunted by two passages of the dozens of passages we could see here that warn us about putting together a worship service like we're doing here this morning without an eye as the church towards justice. One of them we read in our sermon series. It's in Amos chapter 5. This is what God thinks about a worship service that doesn't have an eye towards justice. I hate it. I hate despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melodies of your harps. I'm not going to listen. But instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-living stream a worship service is important justice is more important jesus said to the pharisees in matthew chapter 23 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat, you have swallowed a camel. Tithes and offerings are important. Justice is more important. A group of us of Christian leaders, black and white, in our city have gathered. We gathered three weeks ago to begin praying and talking about a response to the shooting of Ahmad. And we had an open invitation from the chapter head of the NAACP in Brunswick, a dear believer, who is inviting us to come later in June to pray with the mayor and the sheriff. Um, who knows if that can happen now in the climate that is existing today? But even that, it just feels so small. It just feels so wispy. It just feels so ineffective against a system of prejudice that is just unclear in and of ourselves what we as believers can do and what we have to offer. That's just one piece converging on many other pieces even today. Number two. COVID-19, this terrible, confounding killer has already claimed over 100,000 American lives. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a, a clear way forward. The devil loves that we are already at each other's throats, politicizing what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to respond. I think about with that, number three, the costs of quarantine. What actually happens to a society when you pull us apart into this quarantine? And, and what cost there is, seen and unseen, behind the scenes? Joblessness and homelessness and hunger and depression and suicide. All vices are on the rise, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography use. I had a friend share with me a very disturbing trend that for the first time in South Carolina, The domestic abuse hotline is getting more calls from kids than from parents. That's a first. That's happening right here, right now, under our noses. And I think about us as a church. I think about what it does to a church to not be in person together for so many months. A friend of mine said his church feels like a ghost of its former self. And we know theologically that's not true. We know that this is the bride of Christ, that nothing can touch it, that we stand in the book of life for all eternity, but we know exactly what he's talking about, that we feel like a a ghost of our former self. That if it takes two months to, to gain a good habit, we've had two months to lose our spiritual habits of community. And fellowship and hospitality one to another, accountability with each other. How long will it take us to grow back into those very good and wholesome things that God gives us? And then I think you have the spiritual warfare of regathering. I've heard from pastors and friends all week of how terrified they are to lead their people in regathering, how afraid they are for the media to catch a hold of it and to expose them, how afraid they are of being judged. Our church has already received its first spiteful email that said, if you regather on this Sunday, you clearly do not love God and you do not love other people. So if you were planning to send the first one too bad, somebody already beat you to it. Um, But that's real. And some of us are going to go home today and we're going to be disappointed that the church was too lax with our practices. Some of us are going to go home and say we were too tight with our practices. And the devil loves that. He loves to pit us against each other and make a worship service entirely over the things we did and didn't do to protect ourselves. He delights in that. Those are just like global national pieces that don't even begin to touch in whatever happening in the lives of those who are represented here today, what's happening in my own life personally and with my family and the griefs that I'm experiencing, all of those things have come together and have made this the most depressing sermon I have ever preached and we have ever heard. But we know that we're at a crossroads. We know that our world is at a crossroads. We know that our Church is at a crossroads. We know that we as believers are at a crossroads, that we have come to the end of ourselves. We don't have a clear ministry plan forward. And because we share that with the early church, we want to watch our brothers and sisters in the first century respond to those things and see what they do. And of course, in the three verses I read, We saw their response. They respond in prayer, in united and devoted prayer. I love three things about this prayer gathering. I love, first of all, that this was their first response. In the face of this Insurmountable challenge to be a worldwide witness. It's a challenge that's going to take careful planning and execution. Nobody reaches for a whiteboard. There are no whiteboards in the upper room. Nobody grabs an Excel budget spreadsheet. Nobody first reaches for assigning roles on what everybody's going to do and a flow chart for how this is going to get done. Nobody does any of those things because those are meaningless without the first thing, the church calls itself to prayer. Disciples, you've got the leading women who had supported Jesus' ministry financially. Jesus' mom is there. His brothers are there praying together. That's the first thing they do. Secondly, I love the urgency of this thing. I mean, they had just spent... 40 days with Jesus. They had just seen Jesus in his resurrection. If there was any time period I would give my life to be a part of, it would be those 40 days. After Jesus is risen and I could see things so clearly and he would explain to me what that meant, oh, to spend that time with him is worth 10 seminary degrees to see him as he is. If anyone could have took in, taken a, Rest or a vacation, it would have been those disciples. You've you've just been with Jesus. I mean, go to the Dead Sea and catch some rays and relax. You got a big next season ministry ahead of you. This would be great. But they treat time with God like an oxygen mask. I mean, there they are with Jesus, breathing deeply from him, and then as quick as they can go, they're back to the upper room on their faces in prayer, back in God's presence, breathing life from His very self. It's urgent. It's first, it's urgent, but I also loved that this was clearly learned behavior. It's almost like the church had already started a Christian bookstore. And we're selling WWJD bracelets? Because when they all look at each other and say, God, I don't know what to do next, and I'm scared, what should I do? What would Jesus do? They fought with one accord, he would pray. We saw him pray. Jesus began and ended his ministry in prayer. He taught and he modeled prayer. He snuck away for these all-night prayer meetings with his father in the mountains. He prayed before he chose his disciples. He prayed before he fed the 5,000. He prayed before he went to the cross. He bathed his life and ministry in prayer. In fact, in that garden with the disciples, he brought them along and he said to them that most convicting line, could you not pray with me for one hour? Couldn't you join me in prayer at this time for one measly hour? I think about when something important comes up in our lives, Julie and I are quick to pray. And if it's a important thing, one of us prays, right? It's like, do you want to pray? Do I want to pray? You, you'll pray, that's great, you pray. But if it's like super serious, we both pray. And we say, hey babe, we're both gonna pray. You go first, I'll pray next. You know, Have you done that with a friend? Like, let's, let's both pray. And after the first person prays, they already asked for everything you were gonna ask for. So then the poor second person is like, yes, Lord, I agree with everything that that person just said. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, could you, could you not? pray one hour? Could you not spend that hour with me in prayer, seeking me for these very things? This was their first response. It was an urgent response. It was a learned response from the presence of Jesus himself. And look at how they pray in verse 14. It says, with one accord, we're devoting themselves to prayer. That Greek tense here means it was repeated And it says that this is passionately devoted and this is united in one accord together in this kind of prayer. This is not one of those perfunctory pre-meeting warm-up prayers. Somebody just pray so that you'll grease the wheels for hours of conversation about what we should do next. This is not one of those cut flower prayers of let's have the pastor pray for this event so we could kick it off in kind of the right way. This is not, throwing one up to the man upstairs. This is urgent prayer. These are believers, men and women, exposed for how little they have in and of themselves, falling on their faces before God, saying, if you don't move, we can't do anything. Passionate, devoted prayer. Seeking God. They couldn't have known this at the time, Nobody knows this about prayer at the time. Any prayer is just so wispy and so passing. You can't see it for what it is. But this 10-day prayer meeting, which then culminates in the falling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost that we'll hear next week, turned the world upside down. God moving through prayer. We share a context with the early church. We watched the early church say, you know what? Before any of our best planning, we need to pray about these things. And I was going to close with some kind of application about tips for prayer. But what if I just shut my big mouth and we actually pray? What if we close this time opening it up for us as a church body together at this crossroads to commit ourselves to God in prayer? Now, usually I think it's a good idea to plant a few people who are going to pray because that just kind of gets things going. But I decided not to do that on Pentecost Sunday. I mean, I asked Brian to start us, but there are no other planted prayers. So as God leads, stand, pray loudly so that we can hear you, and let's devote ourselves to prayer. Then I'll close, then we'll sing, and we'll go from here. Friends, let's pray together.